Today, we discuss the breaking developments regarding election litigation, YouTube's increased censorship, and explosive new revelations that highlight the geopolitical threat that is the Communist Party of China. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Thursday, everyone. I hope and pray you've had a great week so far. We have a lot that I want to jump into today, but before I do, I want to give two quick updates. First, if you've enjoyed this show, please make sure you're sharing this with your community. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. If you're new to the show today, welcome. So thankful to have you on this journey with me. I'm grateful and honored that I have the opportunity to speak to you about these important political, cultural, and faith topics. Also, make sure if you have not yet uh, left a positive review on Apple, please do that. That helps the show grow tremendously. Finally, if you feel led to donate to the show, if that's something that you'd want to do to contribute to the growth of the show moving forward, you can do that on my website at, or excuse me, not at, that's my Instagram, but do follow me on Instagram at Real Michael Seifert. My website is www.refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Second update I have for you guys is that I'm releasing my weekly video tomorrow. I was originally going to release it yesterday, and then last minute had a bit of a change up of topic, felt like God said go a different direction, and so that's the way we're going to go with this, and we're going to talk about a really important pressing issue that's really relevant to some stuff that's happened this week in the news. So make sure that you come and join me for that video tomorrow. Now, with that, I want to give you a heads up. It's not going to be released in audio format. So normally when I do these weekly videos, I also release the sort of monologue in audio format for you all to listen to wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Tomorrow, I'm not going to be doing that. The reason is, is because there are going to be some elements within the video that are really important that you actually see. Otherwise, it wouldn't make a ton of sense. So make sure that you head to my Instagram, at RealMichaelSeifert. You head to my website, RefiningPoliticsAndCulture.com, or my YouTube channel, which is Michael Seifert. You'll be able to find the video on all those platforms. So now what I want to do is I want to jump into today's news. There's a lot that's taking place all at once across a lot of different aspects of society and political society, uh, both here domestically and internationally. So there's a lot to choose to talk about. I've kind of honed it into what I feel like is the most important for us to keep our eyes on today. And I want to start with the election. I mentioned on Tuesday that the Pennsylvania suit was the big one. This was Sean Parnell and Mike Kelly's suit brought forward. It was not the Trump campaign suit. And at the time, we didn't know about Texas yet. So this was sort of the Trump campaign's best shot at the Supreme Court that could actually alter multiple states, not just one, depending upon uh, if Pennsylvania acted as a sort of domino. Now, I told you that on Tuesday morning, the Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania had to offer their response to the suit. And then Tuesday afternoon slash into the evening, the Supreme Court on that safe harbor deadline would be offering a response likely as to what the next step was going to be. So essentially, the the case was asking for injunctive relief from the Supreme Court, halting the certification, allowing the state of Pennsylvania to have a bit of a different process in choosing the electors so that they could ensure that there was integrity in their elections before they went and moved forward certifying a falsified election essentially. Uh, What happened was the Supreme Court rejected the request to block Pennsylvania from certifying the election results on Tuesday. In the order, the nation's top court denied the emergency application for injunctive relief that asked the court to block the state from taking further steps to certify the election results. The justices did not provide any comments, and there was no noted dissent. So this was a 9-0 decision. The course also did not address the request to review the case in its order. The plaintiffs had asked the court to treat their application for injunctive relief as a petition for writ of certiorari, which is a request to the court to review the lower court decision on its merits. So they did not respond to that piece of it, and they denied the request for injunctive relief. Now, 
You've heard the Trump campaign, like Jen Ellis, for example, came out and said, well, wait, hold on a second. This wasn't a total dismissal of the case. It was a dismissal of the specific desire for relief, injunctive relief, uh, this emergency desire for injunctive relief. So it was a dismissal of the desire to halt the certification process, but not a total dismissal of the merits of the case related to the mail-in ballots. And technically, that that's that's true. Technically, these plaintiffs can come back and try to continue fighting this on the actual merits of the case itself with a different desire for relief. So the attorney, Greg Tufel, told the Epoch Times that the plaintiffs will file a separate petition for a writ of certiorari with a request to expedite the case in due course. He said that there are two parts to the application to prevent Act 77, the state law in question, from being used in future elections and also to obtain relief for this 2020 election. So, yes, technically, Pennsylvania uh, is not over. But at the same time, to put a lot of hope in the idea that the Supreme Court is going to hear this case, let alone intervene on the merits merits when this is how it's gone so far in Pennsylvania, is unlikely. Now, what made this very interesting, though, is that this order from the Supreme Court came hours after the state of Texas filed a suit straight to the Supreme Court. And this is where things get very interesting. And this was surprising. Nobody expected this. Nobody saw this coming. And this suit straight to the Supreme Court, alleges Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin unconstitutionally changed election laws, treated voters unequally, and triggered significant voting irregularities by relaxing ballot integrity measures. A lot of people think, well, maybe the Supreme Court may have denied Pennsylvania's request for injunctive relief because this order had come in by that point, and we see Pennsylvania intertwined in this lawsuit as well. Now, I I have no idea. There's no way we can know, and it's really not important at the end of the day. The reality is Pennsylvania is still in play in this Texas lawsuit, and I must say this, the Texas lawsuit is much stronger. So I want to give a, a bit of a portion of this episode to talking about this Texas lawsuit, what it's alleging, what it's asking for. So let's get into this. The state of Texas on December 8th filed an election lawsuit in the U.S. Supreme Court against these four states. Again, those are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin, alleging that the states unconstitutionally changed election laws. They treated those voters unequally and triggered significant voting regularities by relaxing ballot integrity measures. Here is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's statement He said, trust in the integrity of our election processes is sacrosanct and binds our citizenry and the states in this union together. He said, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin destroyed that trust and compromised the security and integrity of the 2020 election. He continues to say the states violated statutes enacted by their duly elected legislatures, thereby violating the Constitution. By ignoring both state and federal law, these states have not only tainted the integrity of their own citizens' vote, but of Texas and every other state that held lawful elections. Their failure to abide by the rule of law casts a dark shadow of doubt over the outcome of the entire election. We now ask that the Supreme Court step in to correct this egregious error. Now, you may be asking yourself, why on earth does Texas care about what's taking place in these four states? Texas didn't experience any fraud. We'll look back at his statement here. He says, not only did these four states taint the integrity of their own citizens' vote, but of Texas and every other state that held lawful elections. The claim here is that in this suit is that the reason other states should care about what took place unconstitutionally in other states is because, in essence, the votes of Texas citizens, the choosing of electors in Texas, is actually affected by what takes place in other states because they're voting on the same two presidential candidates. So Texas is essentially saying, we played by the rules, 
And by the other team not playing by the rules, in essence, these other states not playing by the rules, our outcome is, ref- is, is affected by it. So we're putting forth electors based upon a legitimate process that was constitutional, and those electors are getting cheapened out of a fair experience when other states did not play by the same rules and yet have an equal level of say in what's taking place, judging by the fact that they have a seat in the table with their electors. So if our election was constitutional and yours was not, because we're voting on the same election with our electors, essentially both of ours were tainted. So this Texas lawsuit seeks a determination by the court that the four battleground states conducted the 2020 election in violation of the Constitution, and Paxton is asking the Supreme Court to prohibit the counting of the electoral votes cast by these four states. For the defendant states that have already appointed electors, the lawsuit asks the court to direct the state legislatures to appoint new electors in line with the Constitution. Uh, Beyond seeking a remedy to determine the outcome of the 2020 election, Texas is asking the Supreme Court to clarify the law for future contests. So not only is this a present day ask, it's also a future ask to make sure that none of this ever happens again and that the Constitution actually matters in elections in the future. So uh, the plaintiff says, in addition to injective relief for this election, plaintiff state seeks declaratory declaratory relief for all presidential elections in the future. The problem is clearly capable of repetition, yet evading review. The lawsuit states the court's attention is profoundly needed to declare what the law is and to restore public trust in this election. This is a really smart play on on Texas's part because they're essentially asking the court to answer the question, does the Constitution matter and what do our elections look like moving forward into the future? If 74 million people that we know of that voted for Trump do not get an answer for this from the Supreme Court on this, if the Supreme Court declines to hear this case, what Texas is saying is that essentially the Supreme Court does not care on clearing up the questions around this election in order that we have confidence in future elections. So that's, that's again, a smart move because it adds extra meat to the bones of this suit for the Supreme Court to look at it and say, regardless of how we rule, we probably should take this in order that uh, the voters can and these states can feel a sense of security around our elections or even clarity around what precedent gets set for the future. Are we going to follow the way in which the Constitution outlines voting or excuse me, election law should should be enacted in these different states? So we'll see what happens here. Now, immediately, there were a lot of people on the right that got very excited about this. There were a lot of people on the left that either got really nervous about this or kind of laughed it off. Uh, There's a lot of legal scholars that are saying that this has legs to it. This is the one. Um, In fact, the American Center for Law and Justice, which is an organization that I I put a lot of trust into, I believe that they're very credible. Um, They have come out and essentially said, this is the one. This has legs to it. It's, It's this case or it's nothing. Um, So we'll see. There are other legal scholars that have come out and said that this is absolute baloney. There's no way that this is going anywhere. And we will see what takes place. Since Tuesday, though, things have gotten rather interesting. At the time of this recording, there could be more states by the time you hear this. But at the time of this recording, 17 states are urging the United States Supreme Court to take up Texas's request to challenge the 2020 election results in four battleground states. This is Janita Kahn reporting. The states, led by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, filed a friend-of-the-court brief on December 9th, which underscored that the case filed by Texas is of great public importance and requires the attention of the nation's top court. So, in the brief, these 17 states essentially argue that the Texas lawsuit warrants review by the high court as it presents important constitutional issues under the Elector's Clause. It also raises concerns about election integrity and public confidence in the handling of elections. And the state said that they have a strong interest in protecting the separation of powers and how elections are regulated. 
When election officials made changes to the rules governing elections, these non-legislative actors may have encroached on the power given to state legislatures by the electors clause in the U.S. Constitution. So under that clause, the U.S. Constitution essentially says that the times, places, manner of holding elections, these things can only be prescribed by the state legislature and Congress. And so they said on in the uh, in the brief, they said encroachments on the authority of state legislatures by other state actors violate the separation of powers and threaten individual liberty. And then they also said the changes made by the defendant states to mail-in voting rules during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, would have likely enhanced the risk of election fraud since they strip away safeguards protecting against fraudulent behavior. And then they paired that with the reality that the relaxation of safeguards for mail-in ballots created needless vulnerability to actual fraud and undermined public confidence undermine public confidence in the election. They mention a lot of those uh, a lot of those changes, including signature verification, expanding the deadline to receive mail-in ballots, failing to implement consistent statewide standards for the handling of mail-in ballots so certain counties were treated different than others. These changes removed protections that responsible actors had recommended for decades to guard against fraud and abuse in voting by mail. So again, these 17 states are essentially saying, we played by the rules. Why should our election results for the president that will govern our states as well on behalf of the federal government, the executive branch, why should our results essentially be secondhand tainted by the unconstitutional activity that took place in these other four states? So here are the 17 states at this moment that are sporting the Texas suit all of which have Republican attorney generals. They're Missouri, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, and West Virginia. So Texas is essentially, with these 17 other states backing them, they haven't formally joined the suit, but the, the, the presumption is that if Texas gets this case heard by the Supreme Court, they will join in with the suit. The Texas campaign is also, or excuse me, the Trump campaign has also announced that they would like to join in the, in the suit and intervene as well. All these actors are hoping to obtain a declaration from the Supreme Court that the four states conducted the 2020 election in violation of the Constitution. It is also asking the court to prohibit the count of the electoral college votes cast by the four states. For the defendant states that have already appointed electors, it asks the court to direct the state legislatures to appoint new electors in line with the Constitution. So essentially what this Texas suit is ultimately asking for is to say, hey, Supreme Court, look, we're not asking you to choose Trump or Biden. You call the election. What we're asking for this election and future elections is that you would give clarity around what took place in this election and that because of where we're at and because of what's taken place, that you would actually either invalidate the vote in these different states, therefore sending it to the House to choose under a contingent election. So make the election contingent or allow the state legislatures to choose different electors at this point, give them the freedom to choose electors that would actually uh, feel confident voting for Trump, because if they still voted for Biden, essentially they would be voting for an illegal vote because the Supreme Court would be ruling that th that state was not conducted properly or constitutionally. So the, if the electors had the freedom from the Supreme Court to vote for Trump and yet still chose Biden, that would essentially be certifying an unconstitutional vote. Or finally, just giving the electors the freedom to just say, hey, we're abstaining and we have Supreme Court grounds to do so. We're just not going to cast electors. We're, we're, we're not, we don't feel comfortable at this point. So we're essentially invalidating our own state. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities through this, but the Supreme Court is basically, or the, the Texas suit, excuse me, is basically asking for the Supreme Court to shed clarity and then also ultimately push this election to the House in January. And we know if that happens, that while the Democrats have a majority in the House of Representatives with individual lawmakers, Republicans actually hold the majority of state delegations. 27 states have a GOP majority in the state. 23 states have a Democratic majority. So if that happened, 
it would go Republican, presumably. And that has Congress has only ever decided the presidential election uh, three times, I believe. It was 1801, 1825, and 1877. And then if the House cannot reach an agreement, the 12th Amendment says that the vice president would serve as president until the issue is resolved. So if that happens, if this takes place and the Supreme Court actually rules and pushes it to the House, it would be wild, but it would be constitutional. None of it would be illegal. None of it would be problematic. It would be a very fair process. The Supreme Court would essentially be saying, hey, we didn't rule any certain way. We just ruled on the Constitution. A lot of the the majority of, of votes that would be cast in order to get a Supreme Court victory would be originalist justices, people who are not activists. They're the very opposite. They just read the Constitution and rule on the Constitution. So if this actually happened, and if Trump ended up winning from it, you would have half the country that would freak out. They would say that the election just got stolen from them. How could this happen? In reality, they would look back to the Supreme Court and say the Supreme Court uh, tilted the election especially because Trump appointed three people on the Supreme Court. What the Supreme Court would essentially be communicating, though, is that, hey, we didn't decide anything. We just ruled what was constitutional and what was not. And then the process played out as it was constitutionally designed to do so. Wild thing if it happened. But it's not impossible. More and more states are believing that there are legs to it. And Donald Trump even described this case uh, yesterday as the big one. He added that the country needs a victory, and he believes that this Texas case is the one to do it. I I will say this. My personal opinions on the matter. I don't have a strong prediction of which way it will go. Um, If the court hears the case, I actually think that there's a real chance they could rule in favor of the state of Texas and this thing could just turn upside down overnight. I don't know whether or not they'll decide to hear it. Um, There's a lot of nuances to this case. I will say this. This is... This is it. I mean, if it if it happens, it happens here. I think the, the state of Texas was very smart keeping this quiet. There's been a lot of other hype around these other lawsuits that's drawn a lot into the spotlight. And then what happens is when, even if they're not a part of the Trump campaign, you know, if the court denies it and just shoves it aside right away, uh, there's a lot of publicity around that. I think the Texas suit was genius because they didn't let anybody know. Nobody knew this was coming. And then all of a sudden, Texas comes out of nowhere and says, hey, we're in play here. We see a problem. On top of all that, Texas Senator Ted Cruz has been actually asked by the Trump campaign, if the Supreme Court hears this, will you argue this case? And he signaled that he would be willing to do so. That's a major deal. If you have Ted Cruz arguing this case, your your merits are boosted even higher. And so uh, he's someone who, in my opinion, is one of the most wise constitutional scholars in the country. He is arguably the best person in the country to be able to argue this that's currently able to argue it, um, that's not serving in a in a court somewhere else at the moment. He is someone who also this would be beneficial for him in his career because he would be able to say in 2024 if he wanted to run for president that he fought for the Constitution at this stage of the game. That's obviously a big deal with his base too. So this would be a mutually advantageous opportunity as someone who believes in the Constitution dearly. I really respect Ted Cruz. There are, um, you you know, thoughts I have around him as a presidential figure, but my goodness, when it comes to constitutional mind, he's he's a genius. I actually think he'd be a great Supreme Court justice. So if my basic point in saying all this is that if the Supreme Court decides to take this, game on. We have a very interesting few weeks ahead of us. If they do not decide to take this, it's arguably done for the Trump campaign. I mean, barring some crazy thing taking place that we still don't know about, which it is 2020, and that could absolutely happen. We didn't know about this Texas suit until two days ago. So, you know, that could happen. There's still evidence being gathered places. Georgia, there's still a lawsuit in Georgia that's going on that actually could have some merits to it. You know, depending on what takes place, who knows? But from what we know now, if it's not this Texas suit, it's likely over for the Trump campaign.
Again, barring something we do not know at the moment. We'll see how this goes. I'll keep you updated as we head into this weekend. We're going to have a big next few days ahead of us. Again, I mentioned that we can likely potentially expect uh, an update from the Supreme Court on Friday. The last thing I'll say on this election update piece is that a massive bummer took place out of uh, YouTube today related to the election. YouTube says it will no longer allow users to upload videos claiming that President Trump lost the 2020 election due to fraud. The video streaming giant made the announcement in Wednesday blog post titled Supporting the 2020 U.S. Election. And YouTube, until this point, has allowed videos attacking the vote counting process and disputing the results of the election, saying that the discussion of election results and the process of counting votes was permitted by its rules. But the new rule has been put in place because, quote, they quoted this in the blog, enough states have certified their election results to determine a president-elect. We will start removing any piece of content uploaded today or any time after that misleads people by alleging that widespread fraud or errors changed the outcome of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. This is absolutely wild. This is essentially YouTube saying from here on out, all you're allowed to say about the election is it was clean. It went well. Trump did not lose because of fraud. I trust my government. I love my government. Go YouTube. I mean, that's really the society that they're creating here. And if you want to really cast doubt on an election process, you will not let people talk about the election process. I mean, this is literally what someone does when they're guilty is they say, no, 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 don't talk about it. If you're not afraid of the conversation, if you really believe that the election was hunky-dory and that it all happened as it should, you'd allow for free-flowing conversation because you would say, well, they're not going to find anything. So yeah, sure, go ahead. Talk about what you want to talk about. We claim that we're a free speech platform. Not only that, the election technically isn't over. Even if Trump were to say tomorrow, I concede, it's all over, the election still is not technically over. Until January 20th, there's not a new president. You could argue and say that the election is over January 6th because the Congress will then have counted the electoral votes. But to say that, oh, the states have certified all 50 states, we're, we're now shutting off any conversation about whether or not this election was clean. That is crazy. This is like 1984. George Orwell must be spinning in his grave. So very, very interesting stuff taking place out of YouTube. Big bummer for content creators, especially people that are wanting and willing to ask questions. There are so many abnormalities about this election. I mentioned it in last Tuesday's episode. Highly recommend going back and listening to that. Questions that have still not yet been answered. Lawsuits that are still pending. Litigation that's still ongoing. You've got a court that this court case in front of the Supreme Court, potentially that they may take up that I just mentioned. All of this is taking place. And in the middle of all of it, YouTube says, nope, no more. We are saying that the election was clean, so therefore you must say the election was clean. Very interesting stuff out of YouTube. That's a big bummer for people like me that really appreciate a digital space to be able to communicate about politics. This is an easy way to shut down the conversation. And not only that, it's also a very quick way to create echo chambers because the only people that are eventually going to stay at YouTube are the people that agree with YouTube. And then the only everybody else that says, you know what? No, I'd actually like to have free flowing conversation. I'd actually like to ask questions and not just blindly trust our government. I'm going to go to another platform, Rumble or Parler, whatever these different places are. And then you'll have basically... All of those people creating an echo chamber, sharing their same ideas, and then all of the YouTube people sharing their same ideas, and nobody will be exposed to both sides. The beautiful thing about YouTube is that five, six years ago, it they didn't have these restrictions, and so people were able to engage with a wide variety of viewpoints. Now, as time's gone on, YouTube, Google, Facebook, all these different entities are continuing to shut the door on viewpoints they disagree with. It's very totalitarian in nature, and it's only bad for the country. There's nothing good about it for the country. Even if you disagree with someone what they have to say. If you're arguing that you are this platform for free speech, you can't just shutter voices and censor ones you don't agree with. My philosophy on this is even if I cannot stand what you have to say, I'll fight to the death for your right to say it because that is true free speech. But YouTube does not want to prioritize that. So 
I want to shift gears and I want to end our episode. I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about China. And you know, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, that I do firmly believe that China is our country's and the world's greatest threat. And there's not a close second. It is China. It is what we should pay attention to. It is where we should set our sights and our guard up against. And yet, our country's economy is so reliant upon China. It's really destructive. And so my sort of rallying cry from the beginning of this podcast has been we should not seek to elect people or give companies power that have a lot of ties to China. Unfortunately, a large majority, or not majority, but a large chunk of our country uh, actually disagrees with me, thinks it's just fine to continue relying on China, to continue intertwining our economy and our lives with them. And I think that's a major issue. And again, I want to reiterate, our enemy is not the Chinese people. When I say our greatest geopolitical threat, I'm talking about the Chinese government. That is who I want to set the sights on, because honestly, the Chinese government is very oppressive toward their own people and is very brainwashing and manipulative. And so that's where I I want to set our focus on when we're having these Chinese conversations. This was only reaffirmed this week. There was a video that's been going around, and you may have seen the video, depending on which news sources you follow and what you look at, but this video essentially was of a professor at Remnant University in Beijing named Di Dongsheng that on November 28th appeared on a Chinese television show about Wall Street and international trade. And like so many other teachers, professors in China, as well as other industries, their employers or their employees, excuse me, are subservient to the country's government. Ultimately, that's that's a communist state for you. This video was deleted from Chinese social media. Actually, soon after it was uploaded, Americans caught wind of it, started spreading it around. It's been around the world now. And so it's no longer on Chinese social media, but we have it downloaded in multiple other spots. And this this video has been translated into English by multiple credible sources. We know that this is what the professor said. I want to actually read you some quotes from this because I think that there are some major lessons to learn from what this professor is talking about. So here we go. The Trump administration is in a trade war with us. So why can't we fix the Trump administration? Why, between 1992 and 2016, did China and the U.S. used to be able to settle all kinds of issues? No matter what kind of crises we encountered, things we solved in no time, we fixed everything in two months. What is the reason? I'm going to throw out something, maybe a little explosive here. It's just because we have people at the top. So quick pause here. He's essentially asking the question, why is it that from 1992 to 2016, we were able to have a very friendly relationship with the United States, even through controversy? And the reason was because we have friends at the top. At the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence, we have our old friends. That's a direct quote. So what he is saying is that from 1992 to 2016, from Bill Clinton, the start of his presidency to 2016. So Clinton, then Bush, And then Obama, we've had a very amicable relationship. Why? Because we have friends at the top that allowed us power and influence there. Then Trump came along in 2016 and actually blew those connections up, blew that relationship up, got into a trade war. I want to keep reading here. For the last 30, 40 years, we have been utilizing the core power of the United States. Since the 1970s, Wall Street had a very strong influence on the domestic and foreign affairs of the United States, so we had a channel to rely on. But the problem is that after 2008, the status of Wall Street's declined, and more importantly, after 2016, Wall Street couldn't fix Trump. Why? It's very awkward. Trump had a previous soft default issue with Wall Street, so there was a conflict between them. But I won't go into details. I may not have enough time. So during the U.S.-China trade war, Wall Street tried to help, and I know that my friends on the U.S. side told me that they tried to help, but they couldn't do much. But now, and this is where things get very interesting, as if they weren't already, we're seeing Biden was elected. Then the whole crowd laughs, by the way. The traditional elite, the political elite, the establishment, they're very close to Wall Street. So you see that, right? Trump has been saying that Biden's son has some sort of global foundation. Have you noticed that? Who helped him build the foundations? Got it? There are a lot of deals in these. And then the entire crowd roars, they applaud, they cheer. 
Here's what we learned. Here are the major takeaways. China has been on the side of Biden, and they're not even shy about it. And this video only goes to show that. It's not like we didn't know any of this beforehand, but this only goes to show that China has their hands so intertwined in the United States, and they love Biden, they love the corporate elites, they love the political elite, they love the establishment, they love Wall Street, and Biden is that candidate. He is the candidate for globalism. He is the candidate that can open the door back up to China having influence in the United States economy. Trump was the first president we have had in decades that was willing to come in and like a bull in a china shop, literally and figuratively, blow up that relationship and say, no more. We are tired of American manufacturing, American small businesses being taken advantage of at the hands of these mega international corporations that are completely at the beck and, beck and call of the Chinese government. We're not going to do it anymore. The Chinese government has, their, has had their tentacles across the world for the last two, three decades, and we're not going to handle it. And Trump, regardless of how you feel about the guy, you have to admit, China admits it, why can't we admit it, that Trump was the first president we've had in decades that's been willing to recognize that, been willing to stand against it, and been willing to actually call out the Chinese and say, they are our enemy. And it's, there's not a close second. Biden still refuses to call them our political opponent, still refuses to call them out for what they are. They've got over a million people currently in labor camps. They're harvesting their organs, often while they're still alive, of Uyghur Muslims so that they can sell them on the black market to recipients, wealthy Middle Eastern recipients that only take halal organs. They continually oppress the people of Hong Kong and Taiwan. They have made it very clear their goal is to leapfrog over the United States to take our economy and our way of life down with it. And the only people that will profit from that are the Chinese and their friends at the top of the United States. That's why some of these corporate elite politicians and business people are not worried about losing their livelihoods because they will profit off the relationship with China, while every other facet of the American economy will go down. Why? Because China will dictate the future of the United States, and China does not have our best interests in mind. They said over the last year they desire for us to drown in a sea of coronavirus. I don't think they care too much about the future of the United States. The West, as a whole, gets in the Chinese way. They've made that clear. They've been building for a long time, and a big takeaway from this video— First big takeaway is that Biden was the candidate of China and Trump was not. And it's amazing that through Chinese influence in the United States and our academic systems, we know that they've had spies involved in, in our American, uh, different facets of our American economy and our American education system, our American political society for a long time. Their goal has been just like Khrushchev's was during the, the Soviet Union, that we would take down the United States without ever firing a single shot. So the, not only has China been build, building their military, but their greater goal has been causing an internal tumultuous relationship between Americans to the point where we just destroy ourselves. They get involved in an information warfare with us, where they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on our media and influencing what we put out. They spend millions and millions of dollars developing apps that then are downloaded by 100,000, or excuse me, 100 million Americans like TikTok, where they can just monitor our data, monitor our cultural environment. They have their hands in our medicine supply, our supply chain. The second big takeaway was found in this last passage, this last little paragraph here. They said, but now we're seeing Biden was elected. The traditional elite political elite establishment, they're very close to Wall Street. You see that, right? Trump has been saying that Biden's son has some sort of global foundation. You remember during the campaign, over and over and over again, the Trump campaign would try to say Hunter Biden is involved in China. Biden has been comp compromised by China and by his family's business dealings in China. Everyone, wake up. And the media kept saying, you have no proof, but then you'd show proof and they would censor the proof. That was the play. So Americans were left 
unaware of the reality of what was taking place between the Bidens and China during Biden's term as vice president. And so Americans were voting uninformed of the the close ties that the Bidens have to the Chinese, even though the Senate report came out and found that Hunter Biden had business dealings with China, even though we had the laptop, which only went to affirm that reality, even though we know that over the eight years when Biden was vice president, he, in his language, was very soft on China. But Americans were hid from the true story, so they either just didn't care or weren't aware. They didn't see the gravity of this. Then the Chinese even admit that Biden's son had a global foundation, and then they even ask the question through a little cheerful laughter, who do you think helped him build the foundation? Even China, through laughter, is willing to admit that they played us. They are playing the American people. Our American media is not willing to admit that. Our American media is not even willing to investigate these claims until after the election. What did we learn yesterday? Well, we learned Democrat Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is reportedly under federal criminal investigation for his business dealings in communist China. Federal law enforcement officials paused the investigation into Hunter Biden in the months before the election and, quote, now that the election is over, the investigation is entering a new phase, CNN reported. Federal prosecutors in Delaware working with the IRS Criminal Investigation Agency and the FBI are taking overt steps such as issuing subpoenas and seeking interviews, the person with knowledge said. In the statement, Hunter Biden claimed, by the way, so he admitted this now, I learned yesterday for the first time he admitted that he's under investigation, not that he committed any of these crimes or nefarious activities with China. I learned yesterday for the first time that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware advised my legal counsel that they're investigating my tax affairs. I take this matter very seriously, and I'm confident that a professional and objective review of these matters will demonstrate that I handled my affairs legally and appropriately, including with the benefit of professional tax advisors. So that's Hunter Biden's statement. CNN's report also said that authorities were investigating multiple financial issues, including whether Hunter Biden violated tax money uh, and money laundering in business dealings in foreign countries, principally China. And the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden began before William Barr became the Attorney General of the United States. Sinclair Broadcast Group, by the way, reported in October that Hunter Biden was already under investigation, a story that was largely ignored by the left-wing mainstream media. Fox News reported in October that the FBI had taken possession of a laptop belonging to Hunter Biden in connection to a money laundering investigation all the way back in 2019. And again, that story was ignored by the media. So... CNN added, CNN even added, Hunter Biden later briefly acted as a lawyer to represent Patrick Ho, who ran an organization backed by CEFC, who was convicted in 2018 of paying millions of dollars in bribes to officials in Chad and Uganda to benefit CEFC energy projects in those countries. He was then, Ho was sentenced to a three-year federal prison term. He's since been released and is back in Hong Kong. Hunter Biden had been involved in an earlier Chinese business venture that drew concerns in the Obama White House and Joe Biden's staff, according to The New Yorker. In 2013, Hunter Biden became involved with U.S. and Chinese partners who were creating an investment fund called BHR Partners for Deals Outside China. Hunter Biden was an unpaid member of the BHR board, quote unquote unpaid, and took an equity stake after his father left office. And by the way, guys, these new revelations just sit on top of what we already learned in the Senate report back in September. The things we already learned from the laptop that some people were willing to ask questions about before the election. And the rest of the corporate media said, nope, we will not talk about it until after this election is over. That's nefarious, it's wrong, it's immoral, it's unethical. You're purposely keeping Americans in the dark about a guy who's running for president of the United States that may be compromised by his family to our, war, our nation's greatest geopolitical enemy. Really crazy times we're living in, honestly. Hey, 
Like I mentioned in most episodes, I'm very hopeful at the end of the day because I know that this craziness uh, all falls at the feet of Jesus, that ultimately he reigns victorious over uh, this earth when it's all said and done. We know how the story ends. We know that we put our trust and hope and faith in him ultimately. And in the meantime, we're along for the ride, trying to fight for truth as much as we can in a culture that does not prioritize it, fight for righteousness and trust that as we seek the kingdom and its righteousness, God will bring about blessings in all the other areas of our life to keep sustaining us amidst all the craziness. But wow, we are watching a lot of wild stuff taking place before our eyes. I feel like we're living in a sci-fi movie. Um, but so that's a friend, obviously, when when uh, this professor in China is talking about we have friends at the top. We know a perfect example of that is displayed in this investigation into Hunter Biden and his finances and the ways in which the entire Biden family may be compromised. On top of that, we have another breaking story. Alleged Chinese spy got so close to Democrat House Representative Eric Swalwell that the alarmed FBI had to intervene. So a suspected Chinese spy operating in the Bay Area during the Obama administration reportedly got so close to Representative Eric Swalwell, who's again the House representative from California, to make matters worse, he's also on the House Intelligence Committee, which is wild because he has um, he has exposure to some of the most classified intelligence information as an elected representative in the United States. He got so close that the FBI had to intervene and provide him with a defensive briefing. The alleged spy, Chinese national Christine Fang, targeted up-and-coming local politicians in the Bay Area and across the country who had the potential to make it big on the national stage through, quote, campaign fundraising, extensive networking, personal charisma, and romantic or sexual relationships. And Axios reported this, by the way. So uh, this is a big-time publication. This is not some fringe network or outlet. Even though U.S. officials do not believe Fang received or passed on classified information, the case was a big deal because there were some really, really sensitive people that were caught up in the intelligence network, a current senior U.S. intelligence official said. The report said that the type of information that officials believed that Fang was collecting, while not necessarily classified, constituted valuable political intelligence that foreign intelligence agencies seek on U.S. officials. Fang's ties to Swalwell began when he was a council member uh, to Dublin City, California, which is a part of China's long-term strategy of getting in with people before they make it big on the national stage. Fang met Swalwell through a Chinese student organization and by 2014 had quickly, quote, developed close ties to him and Swalwell's office and was a, quote, bundler for him, meaning that she helped him uh, bring in big donors and, and help with different super PACs. Amid a widening counterintelligence probe, federal investigators became so alarmed by Fang's behavior and activities that around 2015, they alerted Swalwell to their concerns, giving him what is known as a defensive briefing. So Fang, who was put under FBI surveillance, appears to have only targeted Democrat politicians, as no Republicans were identified in Axios' report. The FBI's probe continued, Fang, as the FBI's probe continued, Fang unexpectedly packed up and left the country, returning to China. Officials say that her Chinese handlers called off her spying and brought her back to China. They recognized what was going on. The report said that Fang had at least two sexual interactions with elected officials that were recorded by FBI's electronic surveillance. So all that said, Eric Swalwell has a lot of questions to answer around what went down. Why on earth was he able to sit on the House Intelligence Committee after these revelations came to light? Because they came to, or to light a while ago. Why was it that the House Democrats were aware of this and they were fine with this? Why was it that they were willing to overlook some of this information as it started to come out and still let him on the House Intelligence Committee? Why were the House Intelligence Republicans not made aware of this? Kevin McCarthy made that clear that they had no idea that this probe even took place. On top of that, this is the same guy that for the last four years has been criticizing Trump for being a Russian agent. So he had the audacity over the last four years to criticize Trump and uh, shoot for his impeachment because he believed that he was a Russian agent, even though there wasn't evidence to suggest that. Meanwhile, he himself was compromised by a Chinese spy. Truly remarkable. 
And so I think that, again, he has a lot of questions to answer. This is not the first time that an American elected official has been compromised by the Chinese. We know that Dianne Feinstein, who's the current senator from California, she actually had a Chinese spy working in her office for 20 years. We know that Chinese have sent spies to our different academic, or excuse me, academic institutions around the United States. Even Harvard has been compromised by a Chinese spy in the past. We know that our different major corporations around the country have been infiltrated by Chinese spies as the years have gone on. We know that for a long time, China has sought to subvert the United States with information warfare. We know that they send people in on the ground to get a solid, firm understanding of how our political system works. They put people on the ground to try to get secrets, intelligence information that countries around the world could seek to use in order to undermine the United States. So this, again, only goes to show that China is our greatest geopolitical threat. They have far more tentacles in the United States than we even recognize. There are major stories breaking like this every few weeks. And unfortunately, for the last few years, the media has been unwilling to cover it because what they were afraid that Americans would understand and see is that you have one candidate who is actually standing against the Chinese and you have another one that was likely compromised by the Chinese. Americans make your choice. They did not want Americans to make that choice, so they decided we just won't give them all the information. So now CNN is comfortable talking about this the day after all 50 states have certified their vote. Really, really wild stuff. So the last thing I want to share, this story about the Chinese as well, uh, this is something that we learned this week that I, I found incredibly interesting. This is a headline out of the Daily Caller. China is using human testing to develop biologically enhanced soldiers, top intelligence officials said. China has conducted human testing on members of its military in an effort to develop biologically enhanced soldiers, Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe wrote in a Wall Street Journal op-ed on Thursday. And he also said that China is a -a once-in-a-generation challenge and clearly the greatest national security threat that America faces. Uh, He warned off the Chinese government's growing power in multiple spheres, including economic and military, naming China as the country's greatest threat. Ratcliffe points to examples of China's theft of U.S. technology, which he says is being used to bolster its rise as the world's most powerful military. To do so, China reportedly conducts human testing on members of the People's Liberation Army. There are no ethical boundaries to Beijing's pursuit of power, Ratcliffe wrote. Former officials have warned that the U.S. adversaries could use gene editing technology— in nefarious ways. CRISPR technology, C-R-I-S-P-R is what it's called, is a lab process that edits DNA and can be used for beneficial medical advances, and Western scientists consider the use of gene editing to enhance human performance unethical to pursue in healthy people. So you're flooding the gene pool with unknown effects. You have no idea what you're going to do to a gene pool. They're editing the genetics of these people, trying to create biologically advanced soldiers. This sounds like something far more out of a sci-fi film than it does actual reality. But the truth is, two American researchers pointed to indications that the Chinese military are interested in using CRISPR to enhance performance on the battlefield in this 2019 paper that affirms the director of national intelligence claims. Although CRISPR has numerous exciting, clearly beneficial applications, particularly in medicine and agriculture, other aspects of Chinese research in CRISPR raise ethical or security concerns. The researchers also noted an interest in biological dominance or command superiority in biology. Modern biotechnology and its integration with information, nanotechnology, and the cognitive domains will have revolutionary influences upon weapons and equipment, the combat spaces, the forms of warfare, and military theories, said the vice president of the Academy of Military Sciences. We are watching military evolve before our eyes, and the Chinese are using deeply unethical practices to accomplish their aims of building their offense and defense against the United States, not just in ground military, but also in naval warfare, in information technology, in automation, 
in cybersecurity, we are seeing an information and physical warfare buildup like we have not seen in a long time from the United States' greatest adversary. And it is something to certainly pay attention to and is something to certainly uh, factor into our voting habits. And yet again, because of the compromised nature of our major media corporations and the very activist mentality that they hold, do not report these important developments. And my concern, not fear, my concern is that we won't recognize how deeply problematic that is until it's too late. So I'm trying to raise the warning flag as much as I possibly can and express the the reality of our relationship with China and the reality of what's on the line in our relationship with China. And I hope and pray that more people will continue to do that. I look up to some incredible um, journalists that are willing to do this, that are willing to actually speak out and call attention to what's going on. Like I mentioned, Tucker Carlson actually showing this video on live television for millions of people the other night. I think that's a major step in the right direction. Journalists have to be willing to step out and take uh, responsibility for our country's relationship with China and what we can do better in making sure that we are protecting Americans from the growing Chinese government influence over the world. I'm going to leave that topic there along with the episode as a whole. It has been such a blast to talk to you all today. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure that you share the show with your community. Leave a positive review on Apple if you have not already. You can donate to the show if you'd like to see it continue to grow and contribute to that growth on my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Subscribe to my email list at refiningpoliticsandculture.com so you can get the show notes from this episode and Tuesday's episode and then be looking out for that video update episode tomorrow. Remember that will not be listed in audio format here. That will be published on my social media platform, Instagram at Real Michael Seifert, as well as my website and my YouTube page. I hope and pray that you all have an excellent next 24 hours until I talk to you next tomorrow. And thank you so much for tuning in. It's been an honor to speak with you. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.